You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, we are into Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. And as you're getting settled there, uh, let me just remind you that we are taking kind of another step today in our set of sermons called Seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. And really one of the underlying convictions of this set of sermons is that we need the whole Bible to make whole Christians. Not, not just the New Testament, we need the whole Bible to make whole Christians. This is part of what 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 are trying to convince us of. When it says all Scripture, not just the New Testament, that all Scripture is primarily thinking about the Old Testament. All of Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man or the woman of God may be complete equipped for every good work. We need the whole Bible to make whole Christians. And we need the whole Bible because as we saw last week, the entire Bible is telling one grand story about one great person. And just to let the cat out of the bag, that person is Jesus. That the whole Bible is telling the story of Jesus. He's the hero of the Bible. The entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation, is about him. So, so we're spending the next couple of months thinking about the, the Old Testament, spending time in the Old Testament. And together, my hope is we can learn to see Jesus on every single page of the scriptures. So today we're in the book of Exodus. Exodus is the second book of the Bible, and it follows Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And if you remember how the story or how Genesis ends, it, it ends with the story of Joseph. It's an amazing story. If you remember Joseph's story, he's sold by his brothers into slavery, and he ends up in Egypt, and he is bought by a man named Potiphar. So, so he is a household servant or slave in Potiphar's house, and soon thereafter, he is falsely accused. Um, by Potiphar's wife, and he's thrown into prison. Joseph, in prison in Egypt, and, and there in prison, he interprets a few dreams, and, and then those people he interprets those dreams for are restored back, or one of those are restored back into kind of Pharaoh's inner circle, and Pharaoh has a dream. And this person reminds Pharaoh, we've got a guy in prison who can do that sort of thing, interpret these sorts of dreams. Pharaoh brings Joseph up, uh, Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream, and then he is exalted to number two, to the prince over all of Egypt. He's number two in command over all Egypt. It's just an amazing, amazing story. So if, if you know how the story goes from there, uh, God essentially uses Joseph to save uh, Joseph's entire family. So when Genesis ends, Jacob, Joseph's dad, and his entire household, all of his brothers, family, siblings, all those guys come down into Egypt and... In a lot of ways, the people of Israel, the, the people of God, they, they're experiencing protection in Egypt and, and this privileged sort of place in Egypt because of Joseph. They've got the best of the land. It's going great for them in Egypt. And, and when you look at the first seven verses of Exodus, you see that. Uh, they're multiplying. They're, they're being fruitful. They've grown exceedingly strong. It, it's going great for them in Egypt. But then you get to verse 8. In verse 8 of, of Exodus chapter 1, it goes like this. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. That's your warning. That's kind of the, uh-oh, this is not going well. Who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. 
Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of them was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. You shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. It is so easy to read the, uh, the Bible in a very sterile way, as if, it's just, you know, as if it's just words on a page. But it's not just words on a page. There are sights and sounds and emotions and screams and wails all in the, the, the words of that page. Just imagine you're in Egypt and this is your story right now. Imagine you're a mom and the government comes in, you're in a foreign land, the government comes in and says, if you have a baby boy, we will kill him. I mean, just, just, imagine, just imagine that moment. If you have a baby, he, he's going to die. Just imagine the terror of that moment. Then you get to verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all of his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. I mean, just insert yourself into that story. It's not their baby boy, it's your baby boy. It, it's your grandson, it's your nephew. And, and all of a sudden, you watch your baby, your grandson, your nephew, ripped out of the hands of his mom and thrown to his death in the Nile. Can you imagine that? That, that, that feels unbearable. And unbearable was now the new normal for Israel. Uh, one author talking about the Israelites in Exodus chapter 1 said this about them. The Israelites were under a fog of unyielding oppression. I mean, look at the words in Exodus 1. The people of Egypt were dealing shrewdly with them. You've got taskmasters, affliction, heavy burdens. They were oppressed. You've got the word ruthless in there. Their lives were bitter with hard service. They were slaves. The command over them was to kill every newborn son. It was suffering as far as the eye could see. That's Exodus chapter 1. Suffering as far as the eye could see. Exodus chapter 1 reacquaints us with life east of Eden. Since that first sin in Genesis chapter 3, suffering, it has become a universal human experience. It's not if, it's when will suffering, uh, you know, become that, that unwelcome guest that busts down your front door. It's not an if, it's a when. And, and this is one of the things that I love most about the Bible. I appreciate that the Bible is an honest book. If you take out Genesis chapter 1 and 2, uh, when God created everything, and it was perfect, and you take out Revelation 21 and 22, when God's going to recreate everything, it's going to be perfect— Every page, every chapter of the Bible between those two bookends 
it is just like suffering is omnipresent. You can't go to a page without seeing suffering in some way, shape, or form there embedded into the page. And, and, and that is a picture of our lives, isn't it? It's a picture of life in this broken world. It's as if suffering is omnipresent. And, and suffering, especially the kind that we see in Exodus chapter 1, produces deep grief in the human heart. And there's a reason for that. Uh, the reason is because God didn't create the world like that. Suffering is not the way it's supposed to be. It produces deep grief. John Bunyan wrote The Pilgrim's Progress outside of the Bible, one of the most widely read and bought Christian books that there's ever been. And he spent 12 years in jail because he, he, would, he would not agree to stop preaching the gospel. 12 years. All he had to do was say, I'll stop, and they would have let him out. But he wouldn't do it. 12 years in prison. And he talks about the grief of his life in prison, especially as he thought about his family, and in particular, one of his daughters who were born blind. Listen to how he describes it. He says, The parting with my wife and poor children has often been to me in this place, in prison, as the pulling of the flesh from my bones. Not only because I am somewhat too fond of these great mercies, but also because I often brought to my mind the many hardships, miseries, and wants that my poor family was likely to meet with should I be taken from them, especially my poor blind child who lay nearer my heart than all I had besides. Oh, the thought of the hardships my, my blind one might go under, it would break my heart to pieces. That's kind of what grief feels like, isn't it? The pulling of flesh from the bones, like your heart is being shattered into a thousand pieces. And this is many of us this morning. Suffering, an unwelcome guest has broken down the door of your life and has come in and made a home. And, and if that's you this morning, if, if, you, if you just had to kind of limp in, it was just a miracle that you made it this morning. I mean, if that was the miracle, you, you got here in the midst of just life feeling so hard and, and daunting. If that's you this morning, I, I want to give you permission to grieve this morning. Keeping a stiff upper lip is not a sign of godliness. Actually, it's a sign of a lack of godliness. Grief is one of the most godly things we can do when, when suffering hits our life. So I just want to give you permission to grieve that this morning. And that grief can often feel like the pulling of flesh from the bones, the breaking of our heart. And grief often, it awakes in us these emotional questions about God, an emotional conversation with God, that, that when our life is going well, those sort of questions oftentimes are just, that they kind of lie dormant in our hearts. I mean, imagine if you were in Egypt, and it was not their son that just was thrown into the Nile to his death, but it was your son. Imagine it was your husband, your wife, your mom, your dad, your, your brother, your sister, who was just beaten by a ruthless taskmaster, maybe even to the point of death. Imagine the sort of, the sort of conversation you would be having with God. God, where are you? How could you let this happen, God? Where are you in the midst of this? 
Listen to, to one author as he's talking about this moment in, in the life of the people of Israel. He said, the questions we ask in the midst of suffering aren't mainly intellectual ones about God's relationship to evil and evildoers. They are emotional questions such as, how can I trust a God who has the power to make it stop but doesn't? Have you ever asked that question of God? Who is this indifferent God who makes such grand promises and then watches as his people are treated so unjustly? Does he feel anything at all when he hears their wailings? Or does he just stand back at a distance letting random events, the plans of evil men, and the forces of nature take their course? It's those sort of questions that begin to arise in our heart in the midst of suffering. And it's those questions that, that in a lot of ways represent the questions that many of us are asking this morning in this room toward God. God, where are you? How could you let this happen? So, so how does God respond to us in the midst of this sort of suffering? When it just feels like our life is unbearable, that it's fallen apart, that we're living amongst, amongst the ashes of our life. What does God say to us? How does God, how does God respond to us as we're feeling hard things, hard feelings toward him, as we're thinking hard thoughts toward him? What, what, what does God say to us? Well, in Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, God says three things to us. I just want to remind you of these three things this morning. God has three things he just wants to remind us of, three truths that he wants to remind us of as our life hits a moment of suffering. Three things, and it starts in verse 23 of chapter 2. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, Verse 24, and God heard their suffering. God heard their suffering. Here's the first thing that God says to us in the midst of our suffering. I hear you. I hear you. I hear your groans. I hear your cries. I hear you. You know, it's an interesting thing what happens to, to most of us when we hit a moment of suffering. In the midst of suffering, we quickly become deists. Yes, I think there is a God, so yes to that, but, but I'm not sure that God cares. In a lot of ways, I just feel like God has sort of wound up the clock of the universe and is just letting it go, but he feels so distant. In suffering, this is sort of the natural default of our hearts. It's not to deny that there's a God, it's just that we deny that there is a God who is near us, and what it means for God to be near us is that God hears us. It's easy to deny that about God. Yes, he's there, but he, he feels so distant to us. And Exodus chapter 2 reminds us that is not true. We may feel like that's true, but that's not true. It's not true that God is far off from us. Exodus 2 reminds us that God is near to us and in the midst of the worst suffering in our life. He is there and that he hears us. He hears our groans and our cries. When our oldest daughter, Hannah, was about two years old, I was out in the garage working on some project. I don't even know what it was now, but she was out in the garage with me, and we had a wagon in the garage, you know, one of those red wagons, and it has like that, that tongue that you would, you know, pull the wagon around with. 
and uh, she was in the garage, and she decided she wanted to get in the wagon, and her solution to getting in the wagon was to walk up that black tongue, that handle, to get into the wagon. It's a two-year-old, and you can imagine how that's about to go for a two-year-old. So she uh, is off, uh, you know, coming up the tongue, and she falls, and when she falls, she hits her head on the cement, and I mean, it was a gash that a Band-Aid just wasn't going to be too helpful for. It was one of those sort of gashes. So we instantly load her up, take her to an urgent care, and if you've been there as a parent, uh, you kind of know that moment. Uh, They pull out this long wooden board, and uh, that wooden board had about 97 straps on it. And they lay Hannah on that board, and the first thing they do is strap her feet and her arms down. And in that moment, she didn't like it. This is where it started to go bad. She didn't like that moment. And the next thing they do is take the straps all around her head, and they strap her head down. However much she didn't like it a second ago, she didn't like it even more now. I mean, it was getting serious at this point forward. And then uh, the next thing they do is take this blue sterile cloth that's got this small hole in it, and they put it over her face where they could just get to the wound on her forehead. So they cover her, her eyes and her face. And at that moment, she fell apart. It was on in that moment. And then the next thing they do is the doctor pulls out this huge syringe, and that needle was so big it actually scared me. And they start to stick that syringe in that wound. And in that moment, she is just crying at the top of her lungs, Daddy, Daddy, help me, Daddy. And and there was this one thing that she said at the end of that. She would say, Daddy, help me. And then she would say, This isn't working. (laughs) You know, good dads, as imperfect as they are, are meant to be signposts pointing us to God, the best dad. And I'll never forget that moment of holding my little girl's hand just with a broken heart beside her, listening to her cry for help. Just, just right there, heartbreaking with her as she is groaning and crying. And, and, and that heart of a good dad is perfectly the heart of our good God. That, that's his heart. When, when we cry out to God, he hears our cries. Romans 8, Romans 8 tells us that, that, that when life has beaten us down to the point that we can't even cry out words, all we can do is groan. All we can do is, all we've got left is a groan to God. Romans 8 reminds us that God hears even our groans. When that's all we have left, God hears hears even that. And if that's you today, if all you can do today is groan, and if it's not today for you, it will be at some point. When all you can do is groan, God is reminding us here in Exodus 2 that he hears that groan. He hears our cries. He is near to us right now. God says, I hear you. But that's not the only thing he says in this passage. He also says, I promise to help you. He reminds us that he is promising to help us. You see this in verse 24. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God remembered Remember is a huge word throughout the Old Testament. Really throughout the Bible as a whole, it is a huge word. It's used dozens of times, 
And it's not meant to be taken literally as if God has ADD and sometimes he forgets. Sometimes he sort of loses track of things too. That's not what it's meant to say. To remember is, is to act for God. It's a synonym of, of, of God saying, I am about to act. This is what he's saying here. God remembering is a way of God saying, I'm about to do something now. I'm about to, to, to get about doing something here right now in this moment. And for God to forget is, is the Lord saying, I'm refusing to act. I will not do anything in this moment. So that's remembering and acting. And, you know, one of the keys to the Christian life is to remember what God remembers and what God forgets. That's one of the keys to the Christian life. So, so think about what, what does God, when God says, I'm remembering my covenant, it's a way for God to say, I am remembering the promises that I have made. And I am going to act on those promises. That's what it means for the Lord to remember. I'm remembering these promises, this covenant that I've made. And now I'm about to do something with those promises. I'm about to act on those promises. So, so think about what it is that God remembers and what it is that God forgets. Because of Jesus, God remembers his promises. That's the great news. It's incredible news. But it even gets better. Because of Jesus, God also forgets your sin. Isn't that a great deal? Because of Jesus, God remembers his promises, and because of Jesus, he forgets your sin. That's, that's Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 34. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. You know that sin that you can't forget? That when you think about it, it keeps you up at night? God says, I remember it no more. Because of Jesus, I'm forgetting that sin. It is removed from me as far as the east is from the west. But God also promises to remember something, namely his promises. What, what did he promise to the people of Israel then? Well, in Genesis chapter 12, he promised them land. He promised Abraham that he would make a great nation out of them. And he promised that he would be their God and that they would be his people. And God now is saying, I'm about to act on that. I haven't forgotten that promise. I'm about to do something with, with that promise. Now, what has God promised us? His people sitting here uh, now. What has God promised us? Well, I mean, we, that's a long list of things that he's promised us. But let me just point out a couple. He's promised to, to do something with our suffering, to do something with it. That's amazing, isn't it? That, that God has promised to, to take our suffering and to work every little part of our suffering out for his glory and out for our good. That's amazing. That, that God is saying, I am promising you that there will not be one part of your story, not one part of your suffering, not even the smallest piece or part of your suffering that will be wasted. I'm going to work it all out for good. Even though you can't see it, I'm going to work it all out for good. He promises to do something with our suffering. Uh, but even better, God also promises to do something about our suffering, not just with it, but, but about it. God doesn't just promise to do away with suffering. Now listen to this. He doesn't just promise that one day he will do away with suffering. He does do that, but he doesn't just do that. He also promises that, that one day he will completely undo suffering. Think about, every, think about every moment in your life where you have ever been sinned against. Think about every piece and part of suffering that you've experienced. God promises not just to do away with it, but according to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, uh, verse 17 God is promising that, that one day he will turn suffering into your servant. That, that he'll take all of your suffering 
and he'll turn your suffering into your servant, and then he will commission your servant, which is suffering, he, he will commission all of that suffering, that, that servant of yours called suffering, he will commission that, that servant to bring you joy upon joy upon joy forever. That's amazing, isn't it? That, that he's going to turn suffering into a servant to, to bring you joy forever. So, so the next time suffering unexpectedly breaks through your front door and lands in your living room, you can look at suffering now because of God's promises and say, welcome, my servant. And you can even do it in a little bit of a sassy tone if you want. Welcome, my servant. Will you please, from this point forward, grab for me, fetch for me joy upon joy forever. That's an amazing promise that God makes. God promises not just to do away and wipe away every tear from our eyes, but but one day God says, he's making this promise to us, that that, that he will take every single tear that's ever come from our eyes and turn it into everlasting joy. He promises to just completely undo suffering in our life. And, And God is here saying, I will remember my promise. I will make good on my promise. One day suffering will be undone for you. One day, God says here, in the midst of our suffering, I promise to help you in it. Not just to work it out for your good, but one day to completely undo suffering. But he has more to say to us in this passage. Not just that he hears this, not just that he promises to help us, but God also looks at us and says, I also hurt with you. I also hurt with you. Look at verse 25. God saw the people of Israel. He he saw them. And and then look at these last three words of verse 25. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And God knew. That word, know, that's an emotive word. It's God saying, I'm not just hearing your groans. I'm not just promising to do something with your suffering. It's God saying, "I, I actually feel your suffering with you. I am enduring your suffering with you. God is saying, I I am entering into your suffering with you. That's what it means for God to know. One commentator says it like this. He says, to know suggests an intimate, personal acquaintance with all the particulars of their suffering. To, to know is God saying, I am entering into your suffering. Just like you're tasting the bitterness of your suffering, I'm tasting the, the bitterness of your suffering. God is saying, I, I'm seeing my people, I'm hearing them, and I'm promising to help them, and I know their suffering. I am entering into their suffering. Now, I just want to anticipate a question at, at this point. And here's the, the question. It's somebody in this room looking at God and saying, God, how in the world can you say you know? That, that, that's a really convenient say, uh, thing to say in the comfortable sort of couch of heaven. So, so how can you from heaven say that you know our suffering? You're there. You're not down here. Your baby boy is not being thrown into the Nile. You don't have a ruthless taskmaster. No one is abusing you and hurting you and beating you and making your life unbearable. No one's doing that. So how in the world can you say you know? Enter the story of Jesus. This is just one of the many ways we see Jesus in the story of Exodus. John 
the Gospel of John introduces Jesus as the Word. And in John 1.14, we learn this about the Word. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God, God the Son, put on a human suit and he came and lived among us. And he experienced everything it means to be human in a broken world. Everything. There's nothing he didn't experience. So let's just think for a moment about the life of Jesus. Jesus had a good friend. His name was Lazarus. And in John chapter 11, Jesus got word that his good friend had died. Jesus eventually makes it to uh, the little village where Lazarus was from to, to be with the family. And as soon as he got there, Mary, who was Lazarus' sister, looks at Jesus and, and essentially says to him, if you would have just been here, if you, if you would have been here, this wouldn't have happened. You could have stopped all this from happening, but, but you didn't. You, you didn't stop it. And upon hearing that, it says that Jesus' spirit was deeply moved and troubled. And it says that Jesus sat down and he just wept. He wept. He, he lost a dear friend and it hurt so bad, the grief was so heavy, that all he could do was sit down in the dust and weep. Have you experienced loss? You know, loss comes in just thousands of different ways. Maybe that's, maybe that's a, uh, physically for you. Maybe it's you've lost a parent. You've lost a son or a daughter, a friend. Maybe, maybe you've lost a marriage and experienced the death of a marriage. Maybe you've experienced the, the loss or the death of your health. Maybe you've experienced the, the death of your designer life. You know that life that you always thought you would have, but now you're realizing it's not the life that you have? Have you experienced the loss that when you allow your heart to linger, you know, linger over it, that the only thing you can do is just sit down in the dust and weep? Jesus has tasted that. He's experienced loss like that. In Matthew 26, uh, Matthew records an interesting scene in the life of Jesus. Jesus is in a garden, and he is anticipating and um, on the eve of what will be the worst moment of his life. And in the garden, Matthew records these words. Then Jesus went with them to the place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. It, it's, it's that sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And then verse 39 says, And going a little farther, Jesus fell on his face and prayed. Have you ever been to that point before? Where your grief your fear, your worry is so overwhelming that you don't know what to do. 
You've cried all that you can cry. You've screamed all that you can scream. But when the weight of, of when, when the weight is on your shoulders, all you can do is just fall to the ground and pray. Maybe it's marriage. Maybe it's the stress of financial decisions. Maybe it's the stress of just constantly being over-obligated. Maybe it's the stress of work. But it's stress and, and that feeling of being overwhelmed that, that is so tangible that it feels like you're living under a constant cloud of darkness. And for some in the room, that, that darkness has been so persistent for so long that those dark clouds actually have a word to describe them, depression. Uh, one of my favorite uh, people in church history is Charles Spurgeon. And Charles Spurgeon consistently fought depression. It was just like a constant companion in his life. And he would often say that when it would come upon him, he said that it, it felt like he was fighting the mist it was so everywhere and all-consuming that he didn't even know how to fight it. It would just be so overwhelming for him. Have you felt those sorts of things? Jesus has. He knows what it feels like to be overwhelmed under a dark cloud that just won't go away. He, he's tasted that. Luke 22 tells the story of betrayal. Judas was one of Jesus' inner circle, one of his trusted 12, right? I mean, from day one of ministry, Judas was right there with Jesus. Uh, Judas was a person that Jesus opened his heart to, gave his heart to, someone that Jesus loved. And, J and Judas took a knife and stabbed Jesus square in the back, sold him for 30 pieces of silver. Isn't that amazing? Have you ever been betrayed before? I mean, I'm talking about the sort of betrayal that just leaves you dazed and confused. A friend, a family member, a husband, a, a wife. Jesus has tasted betrayal. In Matthew 21, Jesus rolls into Jerusalem, and it was amazing. The crowds were just going nuts for Jesus. They're chanting his name. I mean, it is an amazing, amazing day. Everybody wants his autograph. It's amazing. Everybody loves Jesus. Uh, but, but man, how the winds quickly changed. Four days later, the, the crowd goes from chanting the name of Jesus to crucify, crucify. Have you ever been hated before? I mean, like someone looks at you and they just, they hate you. I mean, I, I don't even know what, maybe it's the color of your skin, maybe you don't even know why they hate you, but they just, they hate you, and that hatred causes them to say and do vicious things. Have you ever experienced hatred like that? Jesus has. He's tasted that sort of hatred. Matthew chapter 27 records a scene right before Jesus' death. And in verse 27 of Matthew 27, it says this, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. So you've got Jesus surrounded by a whole room full of soldiers. Verse 28, And they stripped Jesus and put a scarlet robe on him. 
And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. There's a word to describe what's happening to Jesus in this passage. And that word is abuse. They stripped Jesus, they mocked Jesus, they spit upon Jesus, they hit Jesus, and their goal in doing all of that was to strip every last ounce of dignity from Jesus. That that, that was their goal. Have you ever been abused? Felt the helplessness of it? Felt the dignity being stripped from you? Statistics tell us that one in five women experience some sort or some form of sexual abuse during their lives. That feels so heartbreaking just to read that. And what that means is that that story is all over this room. All over it. And and if that's you this morning and you never have opened up that story, never allowed that story to come to the light where Jesus could could deal with you and that story. I just want to plead with you, don't stay in the dark with it. After we finish, we'll have some of our prayer team and elders and pastors up front. We would just love to begin the journey of, of the Lord ministering to you in that. But, but have, you, have you felt the sting of, of abuse? Jesus has tasted the dignity robbing, the dignity robbing abuse in his life. He's felt that. He's tasted the bitterness of it. And listen, we could go on and on and on. And the point is that Jesus, he came and he walked among us. He put on human flesh and he experienced everything it means to be human in this fallen world. Now, here comes the question, like, why in the world would God do that? I mean, if I'm God, I just think I might pick another way. Why why would God put on human skin and come and dwell among us and experience all of these things? Hebrews chapter 2 answers that question for us. Hebrews 2 says, Therefore, He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. But why did God do that? Why did God come down to earth and tabernacle and dwell among us? Why did he experience the the worst of human suffering? Why did God do that? He did that so he could get on one knee, look at every one of his sons and daughters in the eye, and in the middle of their worst seasons of suffering, look at them and say, I know what that feels like. I I know what that feels like. I've, I've tasted that too. My heart hurts with you. It grieves with you. I know what that feels like. I know. Now I want to end by just saying a couple of last things here. Suffering 
has a way of bringing us right to the brink. It has a way of showing us what we really believe about God and about life. Suffering has a way of doing that. So, so here's what that means. It means that suffering brings with it unique dangers to our life. Do you remember the story of Naomi and Ruth? Naomi, her name means pleasant. That's, that's what Naomi means in Hebrew. And Naomi lost her husband, buried her husband, then buried her two sons. And, and Naomi, in that moment, says to the people around her, and maybe even more importantly to God, do not call me Naomi any longer. D don't call me pleasant. From now on, you will call me Mara, which means bitter. She just became embittered to everyone and everything around her, namely God. Do you remember the story of Job? I don't know of any human being who's had a worse day than Job. He lost everything. And do you remember in Job chapter 1, it says that Job looked up at the Lord and said, The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But do you remember his wife? His wife looks at Job in the middle of Job worshiping God in the ashes and ruins of his life and says, Job, what are you doing? Look, Job, look at your life. It's, it's gone. It's ruined, Job. It, it, it's over. It, it's nothing but ashes. Curse God and die. That, that's the danger of suffering. It, it's unique danger. Na Naomi experienced it. Job's wife experienced it. But suffering also brings with it a unique invitation. And here's the invitation. I just want to leave you with this. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Here's our invitation today. If you came in and you, the miracle was just to make it, but you came in with a limp, just grieving today. Let us then with confidence, in the ashes of our life, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's God's invitation to us. So will you bow there where you are? I want to give you a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press into you the things that would be most helpful and to wipe away the things that wouldn't be this morning. Just praying that the Spirit of God would minister to you this morning. And I know for some of us, um, today wasn't for this day for you. It's going to be for a future day for you. When that unwelcome guest of suffering breaks down your door, that today will be a day that will serve you then. But for others in the room, we came in this morning with a busted down door. The unwelcome guest is in our house. And we're sitting in the ashes right now. 
And if that's you, I, I don't know what form that's taking. Maybe that's a health thing. Maybe that's a loss that you've recently experienced. Stress, strain. But, but if that's you today, and, and Exodus chapter 1 in some ways describes your life. It's hard. It's painful. You came in overwhelmed, in grief this morning. If that's you, I'm not going to embarrass you this morning, but would you just stand where you are? If that's you, just stand where you are. Thank you. Yeah, just all over the room, just stand where you are. Mm. Yeah. I just want to give you a chance to stand, and I promise that we won't embarrass you. I'd love for you to stand up and just receive from the Lord today. Anyone else this morning? Anyone else? Anyone else? So for those that are standing, if you're around them, I would just love for you to maybe gather around them. We're going to pray for them this morning, just asking for the Lord to help them. It's just there where you are. You can just lay your hands on them, and you can pray with me as I pray for them. Father, we love these brothers and sisters. And Father, we know that you love them. They're your sons and daughters. And Father, we're grateful that we have a God like you who hears our groans, who hears our cries, who is near to us. Even when you feel like you're far away, you're, you're near to us. That's what the story of Exodus shows us. You're, you are right there holding our hand. And Father, we're so grateful that, that you promised to help us not just to do something with our suffering, but to do something about it. That one day you will undo it. One day our worst suffering will turn out to be our greatest servant who will bring for us joy upon joy forever. So God, help us believe that promise. Help us remember that you are a God who remembers that you are a God who will fulfill every promise that you've made. And oh God, would you right now bend down before our brothers and sisters in this room and God, would you look them in the eye and God, just in the ways that only you can do, will you look at them and tell them, communicate to them that you know, that you know that you became human. You have suffered like they have suffered. You have tasted the bitterness of life in a broken world. Oh God, would you do that? God, would you minister the good news of Jesus to our friends in this room? We're so grateful that you are near to the brokenhearted. You love to save those who are crushed in spirit. 
And Father, we pray that you would do that now. And it's in your good name that we ask that. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.